Hello and welcome to Digital Masters, transforming UK business. I'm Robert Miller from the Times Business Desk. We've teamed up with the experts from KPMG to bring you this three-part podcast on how some of Britain's most established companies are transforming their businesses in the digital age. In our second of three episodes, we're looking at digital innovation and why everyone, really regardless of their sides, needs a strategy to deal with it. We'll have boots on the ground, or more specifically, a warehouse in Erith, to hear how one household name, at least, has changed the way we use e-commerce. And once again, we welcome in the studio another panel of experts and innovators. Let's meet them. Seamus Ray is the Head of Digital Disruption at KPMG. Lorraine Macken is the Head of Insight-led Performance Improvement, also at KPMG. Shashi Verma is the Director of Strategy and Chief Technology Officer at TFL, or Transport for London. And Michael Wignall is Chief Technology Officer at Microsoft UK. A very warm welcome to you all. Uh, Shashi and Michael, digital innovation, when do you think it became part of daily life as opposed to being seen as a force for good, but hey, you've got a business to run and other things to do? I think digital transformation is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. From a Microsoft point of view, it's been at the heart of everything we've done for the past 43 years. Um, But more increasingly over the last few years, it's about focusing on business outcomes. So what customers want to do with technology, whether it's helping their citizens or customers uh, consume their services or their employees be more productive. Uh, And so in the last couple of years, it's really come to the fore with big technological changes. How about you, Shashi? It's something that's crept up on us. Uh, It's been going on for at least three decades, if not longer. Uh, And at each point when new things have become available, new business models and opportunities have become available. And the business world is still catching up with what the potential of technology actually is. Lorraine and and, and Seamus, how has this digital adoption actually influenced the way you work nowadays as opposed to you might have worked even just a few years ago? Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, had, had a huge impact. Uh, I mean, if you look at insight-led performance improvement, that's our approach to helping our clients to improve performance, productivity and profitability using data and digital solutions. So, you know, we've got a thousand strong team that need to be armed with the latest solutions to help our clients navigate their digital journey. So it really is at the heart of everything we do. Seamus, I love the title, Digital Disruption. What does disruption actually mean I presume it means a good way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and being head of digital disruption is obviously my favourite title I've ever had, I think, actually. Um, to, to me, the world has been going through a technology revolution that has, has been said for three decades. But that's just recently, it's gone from being creating operational efficiency, either with a customer or in the back office, to completely new business models. And that's the difference with the technology which has come, come around over the last four or five years. So for me, digital disruption is all about... There are new business opportunities and new business models to go to market. And and that's what that's about relative to 15 or 20 years ago. All right. Thank you all. Sit tight. I'm sure we'll have some interesting perspectives. But first, I hope you brought your scarf with you because we're off to Ocado's warehouse in Erith in southeast London to meet their chief technology officer, Paul Clark, and hear how Ocado's mission to disrupt itself transformed e-commerce entirely, as well as the way we shop. My name is Paul Clark. And we're standing in our Erith Customer Fulfillment Centre, the latest of our four automated warehouses for online grocery uh, in the UK. We're going to be doing a a kind of a magical mystery tour of the different parts. We're going to be seeing uh, how robots basically at the heart of what we do, controlled by lots of different applications of AI and machine learning. 
this facility in Aerith, uh, which went live in June, is being ramped up as we dial up our need in terms of storage and sales capacity. And this is very much what our uh, Carter Smart Platform customers around the world will do when we put their warehouses live. When this facility is fully ramped up, each of the two robotic hives, each of which is the size of three football pitches, will in total have about 3,500 robots roaming around on top of them. So we're in the goods in area, the chilled goods in area. Above us we have these huge green conveyors that are actually for all of the uh, rubbish, uh, whether it be cardboard or plastic, that then goes off for recycling. Hi, hello. So here we are at the decant station. What's happening now is here's a pallet um, containing uh, boxes of apples. The robot will lower a grab and actually pick up uh, a bin. In fact, here we can see here, there's one happening over there. There we are, disappearing up into the grid. And another empty bin will replace it and the whole process will repeat. Our personal shoppers are human. If you went to our Andover warehouse, you'd see our first robotic picking cell. Uh, that at the moment is what we would call a living lab, i.e. We're, we're trialing it, we're allowing it to have a go at picking, but it's a, it's a long-term game because one of the things about ro robotics is you've been learning since you were a baby the strategies for how you pick things up. You know, you, you know based on what you want to do with an object how you should grip it. So for example, perhaps not as a baby, but if you pick up a wine bottle and you're going to put it into a wine rack, you know to put it, hold it by the neck. You know to probably put your fingers underneath the neck to cantilever it, but actually robots have to be taught those strategies from scratch. And so it's a, it's, that's creating the play pens in which the robots can learn, you know, is part of what we have to do. Right. Our, our vision was to use a huge amount of technology and automation to do online grocery scalably, sustainably and profitably. And the reason why that was such a challenge is because uh, grocery is a very low margin business. You know, with an average item price of two pounds, there's about 60 pence to pay for getting from an item, from bringing it into the uh, business, storing it, picking and packing it, and then delivering it to a kitchen table of our customers in a one hour slot. The only way we believed we could do this was with the application of technology and automation. Uh, that wasn't available. We had no choice but to build it ourselves. Lots of people told us that our model of building these huge automated warehouses wouldn't work, it wouldn't scale. Uh, we ignored them. We uh, carried on. We stuck to our guns. Um, slowly but surely, people who said it wouldn't work have started to copy us and have started to add more technology. We've always been this duality of a, a retailer and a technology business. I think it's taken the outside world a little bit of time to understand that and they've kind of seen us as a retailer because much of the technology is, is, is in a sense uh, either behind closed doors or below the hood or whatever but it's absolutely fundamental to what we do. Technology touches literally every corner of our business and it's a massive differentiator. And this technology and a lot of the underlying component technologies like robotics and machine learning and AI, but there are many other spin-off applications in other sectors, some of them very far from online grocery. And part of my mission now uh, in what we call the office of the CTO is to go off and look at how to do those technology spin-outs to um, disrupt those other sectors. As soon as we put something live, we're already thinking about you know, what will replace it you can't afford to be sentimental about innovation. Everything that we learn now will be photocopied many times as we build many more of these facilities. So the more 
aggressive we are about learning fast now, the more it will pay off in the long term. Because quite frankly, if we don't achieve mastery of them as a country, then somebody else will, and we'll end up buying in the solutions rather than building them. Right above us are the robots. So in fact, we are inside the robotic hive in a tunnel. So above us, robots are whizzing around. So this is the ambient uh, hive. Each of these robots is about the size of a conventional UK uh, washing machine. And they live on this kind of two-dimensional chessboard, if you like. And under every single chess square, there is a stack of bins. And the robots are being orchestrated, being controlled by a, a machine learning based air traffic control system. It's also optimizing the storage underneath them. They're passing uh, at a closing speed of eight meters a second with an air gap that's about the size of your little finger. For me, this is a bit like a choreographed dance. So I've been at Ocado for about 13 years now. I joined in 2006. And I mean, the business has changed a huge amount since then because now we're going to take this technology and use it for lots of other purposes in other sectors. This intersection of, of AI, machine learning and robotics, the Internet of Things, cloud computing, that's at the center of our business uh, it is, is really just the shape of things to come in terms of building the fabric of, a, of hopefully a, a smart, prosperous, scalable and sustainable UK. We feel very passionately as a kind of a corporate citizen that there's other things that we need to worry about, whether it be helping to promote you know, digital literacy and, and if you like prepare the next generation for this smart, more automated world that they're going to inhabit. I, well, I tell my children just that because they're going to have to keep on learning throughout their lifetime. They're going to have to keep on reinventing themselves multiple times in the future. But as an employer, it's very important. You know, we've got to get companies focusing much more on lifelong learning, on skills refresh across their whole business uh, in order to future-proof their workforces uh, given the rate of transformational change that's going to hit us. Our thanks there to Paul Clark and his team at Ocado's warehouse in Erith. Uh, Seamus, can I come to you as an interesting example? And I'm sure some listeners at least, and possibly quite a few, the business owners, business managers, they might feel that hearing that, that they've actually missed out on this digital innovation wave. Have they or what can they do? Well, obviously, the short answer to that is going to be no. Ocaro is a fantastic example of somebody creating and, and uh, disrupting the business model uh, for retail. Uh, and actually, I would argue uh, probably one of the best examples in the world in terms of warehouse management. Um, other people would put other brands there, but I think Ocado is right there. Uh, in terms of uh, is when's the right time to start, not starting now would be a huge mistake. I think actually... You know, delaying for another three or four years would be a huge mistake. Now you have to start because otherwise you'll be in catch-up mode in 18 months, 24 months' time. So if, do, if you do nothing else, start to understand what technology is out there, uh, start to understand what's real and what's not, uh, and then start thinking about the business model impact it will have, have with you on the, in terms of strategy and business model. I would agree completely with that. I think the um, the technology is changing rapidly, it's changing quickly, but organisations need to build a culture and skills internally to take advantage of it. Because the tech they might be using today will be very different to 12 months from now, but actually having the ability to harness the value of the tech, that's an organisational muscle that they should build today. Shashi, I bring you here because 
you're running something that people, millions of people use every day. And I, we've all watched the programmes, you know, behind the scenes about Paddington or Transport for London. It seems that you're always coping with the unexpected. Does technology help you in that way? Does it give you any forewarning or is every day a really new day? Some of the technology that we've done is very visible to people. Things like contactless that have made people's lives easier as they go in and out of the stations. There's a lot of hidden technology that's helping uh, improve the system and its operation. The tube today carries twice as many people as it was ever designed to do. And it's doing that only because of better technology. The Victoria Line was the first train service anywhere in the world to run with automatic tra- automated trains. The computers have always driven the Victoria Line. And we thought we had a fantastic railway. We were running 28 trains an hour for 50 years from the time that the Victoria Line was launched. And then a few years ago, we introduced new signaling. This was all computer-aided signaling, but more modern. And we've gone from 28 trains an hour to 36. And that's a 25% increase on the same infrastructure just on the basis of better technology. There is a huge amount available for us to do, both that's consumer-facing, but also things that improve our operations. How would you, Lorraine, go in? I mean, looking at what Shashi's just, I mean, that must be a very difficult concept to get your head around. Is it anybody, really? It is. And I mean, Shashi and I have had the pleasure of working together over the last two years in, in London Underground, trying to move the dial on on performance. Um, so, 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 I mean, if you look at the, the, the industries being disrupted, and we take the Accardo example, I think all industries are going to be disrupted by um, uh, digital and, and data analytics, just at a different pace and magnitude. So if we start with retail and Accardo, uh, you know, we, sh- we see a huge disruption across our retail clients. And just picking up on your point, Seamus, some of that might mean fundamentally changing the business model. But for some clients, the business model might be fine, but they might want to fundamentally change their supply chain using digital solutions. If you looked at other industries coming up thick and fast, you know, we've got telco, media, personal finance. We've seen the arrival of Netflix, Monzo, Revolut. You know, Monzo alone has had a million of its customers driving the way it delivers its services. So how do our clients harness that customer insight and feedback to really drive value across their organisation? And picking up on Shashi's sector, where I work quite a lot, you know, if we look at transportation, healthcare and infrastructure, I would add to that. We're starting to see the start of digital disruption, and I think TFL are further ahead than most. Um, but they're sectors that really impact us as citizens. Yes, everyday uh, uh, life. Every, everyday life. And, uh, you know, the opportunities in those sectors to make, I think, a step change and improvement in productivity and performance it is huge. So how do we move that agenda forward? So, and, and just to build on that, Lorraine, I, I did a paper on um, how the UK can win the AI race. And we looked very much at health. And people always want to go to the, what I might call the sexy end of uh, AI and health. And that's all about diagnosis. But actually, there's a huge amount to do around operational efficiency, right? So you can create uh, huge operational efficiency in hospitals and therefore free up doctors and nurses to do more work uh, with patients. Rather, than, So it's not just about changing the business model. It is actually about operational efficiency as well. I think that's a very fair point. Well, I'd be fascinated to learn, Michael, would, you see, would it be fair to say that Microsoft often builds the platform on which the companies we've been talking about, how much interchanges there between you between say the sort of the front end the transport for london's the Accardos, and they come to you and say i don't know who invented this but 
it doesn't work for us all. Can you do something that's specific for the retail sector or for health diagnostics? How much so that happens? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Our mission statement is to empower people and organizations around the planet to achieve more. And we do that by providing platforms to help democratize technology. We did it with the PC and productivity, you know, going back 30 years and, and more recently are doing it around things like data and AI, because we see the business value in an organization not necessarily in creating that technology themselves, but how they can harness it for the business outcome that they're trying to do. So whether it's TfL or Ricardo or other government customers or commercial customers across any of the sectors that we've talked about, from our point of view, it's we want to provide, we make it easier to democratize that technology. We want to make it easy so that everyone can take advantage of what's coming down the line. So you've just published a report, am I right? What's it Correct. Called? It's maximizing the potential for AI. So AI is one of the, the key areas. We uh, serve surveyed over 5,000 people within the UK, looked across sectors and looked at what the impact we think of some of these digital transformation technologies have on businesses. And some, there were some shocking results. One was that um, 46% of business leaders think that their business model will be fundamentally obsolete in the next five years. So in the next five years, 46% of business leaders said, actually, what we do today will be irrelevant. Um, which is which is shocking, but more less than half rather of business leaders don't have a strategy in place to do anything off the back of that. Uh, and so what we were trying to do off the back of the research was to demonstrate actually organisations that had started harnessing digital technology, in particular AI, were already seeing business benefit. But actually, it's not too late. Back to Seamus's point: if you haven't started, think about your culture and your skills and how to build that capability and get started now. Can I just can I just add to that because I I, th I think it's, it's absolutely about those things, but also think about the data that you're going to need in the future. Because if you just start thinking about what data you need to differentiate yourself and for the new business model in two or three years' time, that'll be too late. So, culture is absolutely important. There's a great um, professor Donald Sala, MIT, who talks about active inertia in large organisations. So people know they need to change. They can see the writings on the wall, but they haven't done the strategy and they haven't changed the culture. So they're just going to do a talk, a good talk, but not execute. So, so start, execute, get the culture right, start thinking about what data you need. And I agree with that because where Microsoft can play with the technology platform, where organizations have their uniqueness is in their data. That's the uniqueness that TfL knows about how efficiently the, the tube runs is something unique to them and then they can leverage our platform. Likewise, Ocado's information about shopping patterns and, and stock profiles is their unique data. And so that's, that's very valuable. And of course, that phrase of active inertia, going back to the culture and human behaviour, if you feel as a firm that you're under attack by whether that's competitors, short sellers, regulators, sometimes the press, actually, you know, the, the tendency to fall back on those old tried and tested ways of driving improvement and transformation is quite strong, I think, in human beings. So, you know, handling the cultural change that you need to go through to be able to get the benefits from these digital technologies um, get staff uh, and all of the people in the organisation to harness that, which is a big um, uh, skills challenge for many of our clients, is, I think, uh, more critical than sometimes the technology itself. So thinking those things through early and, and, and looking at how it can really move the dial on um, uh, the outcomes, the profit, the performance, the productivity of your firm, I think is vitally important. Shashi, in some ways, you don't have the luxury of our other guests do you i mean you are under you're on the front line every day do you ever feel that actually with such a disparate organization spanning so many thousands of people 
you're almost fighting a rearguard action sometimes. Like any industry, you know, we are sometimes behind and sometimes ahead, uh, and sometimes we are far ahead of everyone else. Like every industry, we've got to look at the potential that technology offers to be able to run our business better or to offer our customers a better service. Uh, we try to do as good a job as we can, and on things like contactless, we have led the world. You know, this is a technology created by us. It's now running around the world, and it has fundamentally transformed the nature of our interactions with customers. Avoid card clash. I'm just thinking of the. It's become almost a fairly <laughs> London that we all know. Avoid card well, clash. When we you were we were so successful with contactless, I and mean, we are still very successful with contactless. But we were so successful with its launch, that in its first year, the Oxford English Dictionary put car clash is one of the top 10 new words in the lexicon. Excellent. Well, not a lot of people know that, but we do now. But, but the point there is that, like any business, you know, we have limited bandwidth to do new things. And sometimes we are leaders and sometimes we are followers. Uh, you can only lead on things where you have reasonable chances of being able to lead. What you can't do is sit this one out. The people who will die are the people who are not transforming with the nature of technology that's becoming available. That a fair assumption, Michael? Yes, absolutely. The um, the the technological changes, ha the pace of change is what's the new normal. We've had technology disruption previously, but the the speed at which technology is changing means that organisations just need to keep running to to catch up. And if they're not running, then going from a standing start will mean they'll be left behind. I just, I, I think that's exactly right, and I think that's exactly why you shouldn't try and do everything in house, right? So there's no point in trying to kind of create the best voice recognition system around. Let the, the big technology houses do that and just call their APIs, call, make a call to that system um, and focus on what you actually is going to differentiate your business because everything else is changing so rapidly. And I think Shashi's point on bandwidth is absolutely critical. You know, if you're working in London Underground or TFL, it's a heavily operational business. You've got to keep the wheels literally turning most of the time. So, you know, prioritising a manageable number of changes that are going to move the dial the greatest extent on performance is, is really, really key. Do you think all this change clearly involves people learning new skills and techniques, and in some cases, fundamentally so? I mean, I th wasn't it the rule of thumb used to be about you change careers every two or three times? Now that could be every decade. How difficult, from a KPMG perspective, is it to get people to come along with you when you're talking to a company and say this is what we must do to survive and you have to relearn as we all do well we we, we actually uh sponsor the uh, ai or party parliamentary group um in the uk and we did a, a piece around future skills uh, and it's really clear to us actually from a general population point of view that people are going to have to re retrain every five to ten years that's what i'm telling my children today um but, but actually, we also do a lot of work around workforce optimization. So we, we used to call it workforce planning, but it's now workforce optimization. How do we get people to have the right skills at the right time? We can see what we need in three years' time and five years' time. Uh, and actually, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the skills that we need don't really exist in the general population. So this great term, data scientists, you know, there weren't degrees called on data science, you know, 10 years ago. So, so how do we train people up and get them engaged with the right, uh, right skills at the right time? You can plan that out in terms of organisations. I think skills are essential. Not a lot of people know, but we, we actually run the largest learning organisation in, in Europe through our civil service learning uh, and NHS leadership academies. Because I think we recognise that Technology success is about adoption 
And if people don't feel they've got the skills to adopt some of those technologies, you, it won't lead to the benefits that you can expect to, to, to deliver. So we've put learning at the heart of that journey. If people don't feel confident and comfortable, then they won't adopt it. And therefore, the organisations we work with won't get the benefits that they're trying to achieve. I think it is important to recognise that in all this um, you know, hype about technology, uh, there are many other things that matter in life, and the business is what matters much more than technology. There are many things that are transformed in the way they use technology, but fundamentally, a train still runs on wheels. We still need people who, have, who know how to run a wheel lathe. Technology is really important, but at the end of the day, it's the people that matter. And it's how the people use the technology that matters if you want to exploit the technology itself. So, you know, change has always been a people-oriented thing, and it's not about to, that's not about to change anytime soon. What is different is that the potential of technology is available. It's available in a different way. I would argue that the potential of technology has been available for a very long time. It's just a question of how you go on exploiting it. Do you think, what are the innovations that you see coming down the line that are actually, you're excited about? To answer that question, you should also look back in time to see you know, what are the biggest innovations that have changed our life. Because um, I could take a very skeptical view of all the hype around things like machine learning and AI. If you look back at the 150-year history, 156-year history of the underground now, the biggest technological change in the underground came in 1922 when people didn't know silicon from anything. Right? Uh, the biggest change ever was that until 1922, every train had manual doors. And we had a staff member on every train car to open and close the doors. Now, can you imagine a six-car train needs a driver, a guard, and six other people to run it, eight people to run a train? And the invention was the pneumatic door which could be operated by the driver or by the guard. And suddenly, a train could be run by two people instead of eight. There has never been a productivity improvement of that same scale in the transport industry ever, right? Um, certainly in the railway transport industry. So as we look at the potential of technology and, and what it can do for us today, there is a bit of humility needed that this is not something that's new. The way it, in which it's manifesting itself today may be new and maybe novel, but fundamentally, the issues that come up from all of these things have been around for a very long time, and we should know how to deal with them. Michael, I mean, it's a slightly different view because we said before, you're sometimes at the very beginning of the processes of, of systems and technology that people will then implement. Is that human aspect very much part of your design, or is it, look, we're giving you the technology to do it, it's up to you to look after the people and to and to look at the possible person. From a Microsoft perspective, we absolutely see that we have a responsibility, not just for the technology, but for its use. Um, and so we think closely about the proper ethical use of our, our technology, particularly with some areas like artificial intelligence um, and the use of data, personal data on it's not just um, how you use it, it's should you use it. Uh, and so we published a set of ethical principles where we will build a platform, but we'll provide guidance about how we use it internally and how we suggest other organisations use it. And we work closely with governments and policy and regulation um, makers to, to help enshrine that in, in law as well because um, technology is a huge force for good. I'm a tech optimist. I do think that, that um, things like artificial intelligence, mixed reality, quantum computing coming down the line, these big bits of tech that we're at the cutting edge on will have a, a huge impact on people's lives, but we need to make sure it's having the right sort of impact. Do you feel 
with a KPMG view because you see so many different clients and of different sizes of business that this point about humanity is something that companies do feel or do you have to drum it into them sometimes? Uh, I think uh, I think if you start with the customer and of course the customer could be um, a customer in retail, if you're in healthcare, it could be the patient. If you're in chassis organisation, it's probably everyone using the, the system on a daily basis. I think if you do start by putting the customer at the heart of that journey and then designing back from it, you, you won't lose that sense of humanity. But, but we've, you know, we've, Shashi gave a great example about the automated doors. We've got to set that in the context of large, complex workforces. You know, and what does that do to the workforce? How do we actually maybe um, retrain or train that workforce to be performing more value-added tasks, um, like helping customers navigate the tube system? So, so I think you've got to think through the um, uh, humanity from a customer perspective and from a workforce perspective and really put that at the heart of the design of that transformation journey. Lorraine, I suppose we've talked about the range of businesses you see. Who do you think are best placed now, either through their mindset or their technology or what's available? Who do you think is going to prosper? That's a really in- interesting question because I do think um, digital disruption will, will impact every industry. Uh, as I say, we've seen it happen in retail already. Who's you know whether this this is peak disruption that we're seeing in retail at the moment? I don't know. Time will tell. Um, uh, again, those sectors, um, telco, media, and uh, and particularly personal finance, where we're seeing some disruption and in innovators come into the market. Uh, and as I say, transformation in healthcare, where that could really really move the dial on all of our lives. But we we've got to you know we've got to get the environment right we've got to get the culture right and we've got to get the investment right you know a lot of if you look at the infrastructure sector if you looked at construction firms you know they're operating on wafer thin margins very often the reason that they're sometimes not innovating and investing in drone technology to do inspections three um, D printing for parts is you know how do you actually use precious cash to get the investments right to move the dial on some of those performance results that we expect our clients and organisations to make. Would you agree with that, Michael? Well, yes, I do. Every industry is is ripe for um, disruption across all the ones mentioned, financial services, manufacturing, retail, but even in areas you might not think, like um, precision agriculture, using some of those technologies like drones and, and data and AI to look at crop yields, um, at farm in, in dairy farms, using Internet of Things on cows to help maximise milk production. You know, the, Every industry has an opportunity. It's about the use case and the scenario and using the technology in the right way. But what's been fascinating to me anyway, at least, is that for all four of you, you've covered the areas that, as you mentioned, touch on all our lives. It's medicines, it's shopping, it's transport, it's it's getting about, it's running a business and employing people. So I'm going to be slightly mean. I'm going to ask each of you, starting with you, Lorraine, for a last thought. For anyone listening, what would you say, what's your best tip going forward now that you could actually do or start to do tomorrow after listening? So I think, I, you know, I'd point to three things. You have to understand you, you, your customers and your clients and you've got to use that insight to really prioritise the solutions that are going to matter most. You know, budgets and investment is tight at the moment. Secondly, start with the results and the business problems and work back. You know, I, I often see technology looking for problems you know, we need to, to start with the results and problems and work back. And, and thirdly, which I think we've picked up as we've gone through, is you, you've got to put 
workforce at the heart of that journey. Otherwise, you're not going to deliver the, the potential benefits you could. Seamus, if I could ask you the big picture, where are the good things that you see coming down that think this is actually really going to transform our lives? A bit, a bit like Shashi said about the doors. Well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's some great research which is going on in the research labs at the moment, which I think will have a profound impact on the next five to ten years. Right? So, so there's lots of really exciting stuff all just on the horizon, which is in the labs today. And we're coming through what we're seeing at Microsoft today, you know, that is great and fantastic. But you know in Microsoft labs, they've got a whole load of things which are going to be really interesting over the next three or four years. And that's why you've got to keep up with the pace of change. He's put you on the spot, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in general, my, my principle, the last thought is that focus on what you as an organization have uniquely, and most of that is around your data and your know-how processes and people and culture, and then find the right partners and use platforms and technologies that they've built for you. Don't try to start from scratch and, and reinvent the wheel every single time. Build on the investment that people like Microsoft make and then focus on what's unique for your organization. Quite right. And Shashi, on the grounds that no one's ever actually reinvented the wheel, what do you reckon looking forward to the future? Well, I'll throw a challenge out for your listeners. Um, if you look at the last 30 or 40 years in uh, in terms of technology growth, there has been more investment in tech than at any other time in history. If you look at the things that are coming through right now with AI and machine learning and all that stuff, I mean, it's all fantastic. But when you look at the broader economy, the impact of all of these on productivity is negligible. So clearly, all of what we've created with better technology and all that has been absorbed somewhere else. And if I want to be successful as a company, or if I was looking more broadly at the economy, that is a question that we have to address. Why is it that we've had all this beautiful technology and we've made all this investment and it's very visible that it has produced results in some places? So where has it got lost in the overall economy? Well, that's some interesting thoughts there and a fascinating discussion. Thank you all so much. We could probably do with another couple of hours to discuss them, but sadly we're out of time. So thank you very much to all of my guests and, of course, Paul Clark and his team at Ocado for welcoming us there. Do join me next time when we take a look at innovation in times of uncertainty. And I think you know what I mean. Don't miss it. Select the subscribe button on your podcast device and each new episode will pop up automatically when it's released. Thank you for listening to Digital Masters from The Times in conjunction with KPMG. And please join us again next time. I'm Robert.